The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Galatians chapter 4, and uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We gather today, Father, as your people appointed by you to be here today. So we pray that by the power of your Spirit you might open our hearts, our minds to the truths of your Word. We come to celebrate, we come to sing, we come to pray to hear your word. So, Father, do your work in the lives of your faithful people today. There are many people worshiping you around the world who are living in dangerous places. Fear their lives if they're caught worshiping Jesus Christ the Savior. We pray for your protection. We pray for our missionaries who are leading worship in those places as well and ask for your safety and protection, that you'd help them to fulfill the calling that you uh, called them to and bless their lives as they serve you. We thank you for those who've traveled safely to come visit family uh, and be with us today. ask that you bless their family time together. We thank you, Father, for returning Al to us this morning and pray for continued healing and strength in his life. For others in our fellowship, Lord, that can't be here or home sick or in the hospital, uh, in, in desperate need of, of a touch from the only one who can bring them healing and strength, we pray that you would bless them today and use us as a church to minister to them and to care for them. Lord, there are many needs around the world. The nations are fighting and there are rumors of war and, and We pray that you would show yourself, that the church would be the church, that we would stand strong, that we proclaim the gospel clearly and effectively, empowered by your Spirit. Lord, do your work in our lives. Continue to bless as we hear your word now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our text today is Galatians 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. But we won't look at all those verses. It would take a month or two to preach through just those few verses. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
And I'm turning your Bible also to Romans 8. There's a similar passage in Romans 8. I'm going to read just a few verses for you there as well. Beginning at verse 14. Romans 8, 14. I, my hearing's not great, but I love the sound of Bible pages turning. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And that's the word of God today. I think it's appropriate that we uh, do this passage on this day for a number of reasons. It's, um, it's Christmas Eve, isn't it? I just had to think for a minute. It's Christmas Eve, and uh, we're grateful for that, we're grateful to have you all here. But on Christmas Eve, we uh, traditionally here at our church share at the Lord's table together. And so it's appropriate, too, that we see this passage in light of this ordinance of the Lord's Supper where the body and blood of our Savior is presented in these elements. In these verses, like I said, we see a lot of things, but I'm going to focus on verses 4 and 5 this morning. And all we're going to see is the, uh, the when, the who, and the why. When God sent, who God sent, and why uh, God sent just the when, the who, and the why. And if you if you Google sermons on on which I didn't do by the way, but if you Googled sermons on um, on this passage, you'll see that particular outline uh, in this passage. It just seems to fit for everybody's text. I've preached this text four times since 1995, and never uh, exactly the same way. First, when, when the fullness of time had come. We're an impatient people, aren't we? Yeah, some of you admit to it, a few of you. Especially we're Americans. We're, uh, we're, I think Americans are more Im- impatient than everybody else around the, the world. W- waiting for the right time is really hard for us, isn't it? Is that hard for you, or am I the only one? Okay, just checking. Or you're asleep, one or the other. We just don't want to wait. I remember as a kid at uh, at, at Christmas, the only the only morning of the year that I would wake up before daylight would be Christmas morning. I was just so excited. Our parents made it a big deal, and there were five kids, you know, and we were really excited about what was going on. Now, since there were five of us, the night before, we put on our bathrobes and everything. My sister had her doll, and we did the nativity scene. Remember that, Mom, when we did that? Yeah. But I I would be impatient. I couldn't wait to see what I received that morning. Or that we're impatient, that 
that seven-year-old waiting for the smartphone. I just pulled that number out of, out of my head. When do kids start wishing they had a smartphone? Uh, uh, I see little babies, you know, pretending they're talking on the phone already. So who knows? Or that teenager waiting to get his driver's license. Or that couple waiting for that baby to come. We've been uh, preaching. I, I still say we've been preaching through James. We just started James. Um, and uh, he, James begins the book talking about our trials and how our trials produce steadfastness in our life. Oh, those trials. We have to wait till those are over, too. When, oh, Lord? When is this going to be over? And we define steadfastness as patient endurance. But here's something Paul knew all too well. That the timing of the birth of Jesus was timed perfectly for a purpose by God the Father. God's timing is always right. There was a long wait for a lot of people. Moses got the law, and then 1,300 years later, Jesus was born. David was promised a Messiah in his line. A thousand years later, Jesus came. Malachi prophesied 450 years later, Jesus came. And then there was that 400 years of silence, what we call the intertestamental period. God hadn't spoken until now. Zechariah and his bride, Elizabeth, they lived in that period of silence. And then you know that uh, the angel came to him and told him they were going to have a son, John. But guess what? Not until that baby was born, Zechariah, are you going to be able to talk? Wives would love that, wouldn't they? But he had to wait, waiting, waiting, waiting. And you and I, uh, should the Lord not return today, we'll keep waiting. We'll keep waiting for his return. Just as we're expecting him to come again, in the first century they were expecting the Messiah. could hear the little boy ask his father in that Jewish home, Father, Will the Messiah come tomorrow? Oh, we've been waiting, son. We'll see. We hope he does. And so they were waiting, just as you and I are waiting. It's hard. And after all that waiting, the Apostle Paul reminds us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, the sovereign ruler over all, who plans everything and all his things all his all his sovereign plans will come to pass and they'll come to pass in perfect timing when the fullness of time would come Christ didn't come one day before or one day after his appointed time God's law was the standard under which people lived for a long long time But when the time had fully come, or at just the right time, Jesus came. Martin Luther 
described this, when the time of the law was fulfilled and Christ was revealed. Planned by the Father in his perfect timetable. And referring back to James, when we were talking about those trials we're going through, I don't know what you're going through today. I know what some of you are going through, but I don't know what all of you are going through. But talking about God's perfect timetable, those trials in your life that are maturing you, they're making you uh, more sufficient uh, toward your expectation of what God can do in your life. Those trials you're going through, they'll be over when he says it's over. It's God's perfect time. Scholars had said that uh, the the, the cultural moment was right also for Christ's coming. That it was right religiously. We know that during the Babylonian captivity, Israel once and for all had repented of their idolatry. And really not since then has Israel falling into idolatry like there was at that particular time. Now, Judaism has fallen into secularism, but not idolatry as such. Yet the practicing Jews have not fallen into the idolatry that was a part of Israel's life for 2,500 years or longer. So during the Babylonian captivity, they had repented of that sin and they haven't fallen into that sense. They were open to what was coming. They were expecting the Messiah to come. During the Babylonian captivity as well, synagogues were produced for the first time. So they had places of worship and they used them as schools and, and as courts. The Old Testament was completed. There was a Hebrew Bible now, thanks to Ezra and others. That was happened during their time in Babylon. So there, there, was, a, there was a cultural uh, a milieu of, of, of people throughout that land who were expecting the Messiah. The time was right. It was right culturally. There was a common language for these apostles who would travel and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a common language. It was Greek. Alexander the Great had had, um, established Greek culture and Greek language throughout the known world. And now that Rome has taken over control of the world, the Greek language had remained. But it was right politically as well. Rome had instituted what you know as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace provided economic... The Romans were brutal, but they, they provided economic stability, political stability at that time. And they were geniuses as well, so the apostles and those who were spreading the gospel could travel those Roman roads freely and, and relatively safe in their travels. They were so good at building roads and bridges, I walked on some of them in Spain just a couple months ago. Maybe you've done that too. 
Each of those factors is in some way unique to the key spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember those words of, uh, that Judas sang in the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, Jesus Christ Superstar? Every time I look at you, I don't understand. Why you let the things you do get so out of hand? You'd manage better if you'd had it planned. Why did you choose such a backward time in such a strange land? If you'd come today, you would have saved the whole nation. Israel in 4 B.C. had no mass communication. you remember those words, or am I the only one? I'm probably the only one. I'm sorry. Israel in 4 B.C. had no mass communication. Why didn't you plan this better? Well, in a sense, they did have it. It was modern for them. The way they could travel back in those days. The way they could communicate because of those roads. Those were modern times. And God's timing was perfect. And it was a sinful time. You think now we sit around and talk sometimes, talk about the sin we see in the world and the evil we see in the world. But if you read your history... You read what was going on back then. It's a piece of cake now. It was rough. This was an appointment. This was the fullness of time. John MacArthur says about that, The fullness of time refers to the completion of a period of preparation in God's sovereign timetable of redemption. When the law had fully accomplished its purpose of showing man his utter sinfulness and inability to live up to God's perfect standard of righteousness, God ushered in a new era of redemption. When he sent forth his Son, he provided the righteousness for man that man could not provide for himself. And that leads us to who God sent. God sent forth his Son. As a great teacher, we lost a week before last, R.C. Sproul, and I watched it. You might have watched the live stream of his funeral service this week. I've watched parts of it more than, more than once. It's a great tribute to a godly man who wrote a book back in 1980 that I read back in 1982 that changed my life. R.C. Sproul says about this, Now, in this enfleshment, and I guess if you're R.C. Sproul, you can make up words too, because I think that's a made-up word. Now, in this enfleshment, if you will, of Christ appearing on this planet, it's not that God suddenly changes through a metamorphosis into a man so that the divine nature sort of passes out of existence and comes into a new form of fleshiness. No, the incarnation is not so much a subtraction as it is an addition where the eternal second person of the Trinity takes upon himself a human nature and joins his divine nature to that human nature for the purpose of redemption. God sent forth his Son. This is really a vague reference uh, to the preexistence of Jesus. Uh, if, if, he was, if, he, if he was sent, he already existed. We know that throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture, we, we know that Jesus has always been. Uh, you could define that word sent out as sending out from a previous state. 
And Paul is making clear to the Galatians, he's making clear to you and me too, he's not using a lot of words to do it. God sent forth his son. That's all he said. But he's making it very clear that Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born. Different from any other baby. Before you were born, you didn't exist. Jesus did. There's a Christmas hymn, and I noticed in that He Shall Reign Forevermore that we just sang, there's a line, like maybe they copied this line from this hymn, See Amid the Winter's Snow, an old, old Christmas hymn that you don't know, but there's a line, Lo, within a manger lies He who built the starry skies. That's the, those are the exact words, aren't they? John 1, John says, All things were made through Him. Without ceasing to be, He was God. And He came to be what He was not, man. And we do see that in John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was uncreated because He was the Creator. God sent forth His Son. God, Christ did not begin to be the Son of God at Bethlehem. Christ didn't begin to be the Son of God at the Jordan River. Christ didn't begin to be the Son of God at His resurrection or His ascension. He's the only begotten God from all eternity. And God didn't send him from Galilee to Jerusalem. God didn't send him from the manger to the cross. He sent him from heaven to earth. It's hard for us to take all of this in with human language. It's beyond us. Timothy George says, in sending Jesus, God did not send a substitute or a surrogate. He came himself. God sent his Son pre-existent. There is no other. Jesus is the only one qualified to fulfill the plan that the Father had established. He says, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, emphasizing His humanity. So the first phrase emphasizes His deity. The second phrase emphasizes His humanity. Now, that's a mystery. We've sung that today, too. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. J.I. Packer says, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to, uh, taught to talk like any other child. There was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. Born of woman. He's simply reminding us Jesus is divine and Jesus is human. It can also be uh, Paul's way of affirming, some people suggest this is Paul's way of, of affirming the virginal conception of Jesus by saying born of woman. He's saying without the cooperation of a human father, 
He was born of woman. Paul doesn't talk about Mary's virginity at all. This could be an allusion to that. We know he, was, he had to be aware of, of it because uh, he was friends with Luke. God gave his one and only son. Entered into our world as all human beings enter through the process of birth. He was not just sent to be with humanity. He became humanity. We see Paul tells us that in Philippians 2. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul describes this nature in Romans 1 concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit. And at just the perfect time, in God's perfect time, He came. God came. And coming, He comes in a unique way. We call that the dual nature of Christ, both God and man, the God-man came forth, born of woman. That ancient promise, see back in Genesis, the born coming from the woman's seed. So important in this particular passage. And Jesus fulfilled that promise. We see His deity. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, His humanity, Born under the law. That just means he was Jewish. Born under the law. Jesus was born into the Jewish system. He's a citizen of the Jewish nation. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He, 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 he grew up in a home where the Torah was read. He prayed to his heavenly father. He went to synagogue, faithfully fulfilling all the law's demands. So the one who made us free from the law, opened up the way of grace for us, is the only one who's ever lived the law perfectly. God sent His Son, born of woman, born under the law. See, God, when God sent, and who God sent, why did God send? Well, Jesus' ministry is twofold. Look at verse 5. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. First, He rescued us from the bondage of the law. He rescued us from the, the hold that the law would have on us. But He didn't just do that and send us out on our own. He adopted us into a his family, so that we might become sons and daughters. So Paul, in just two verses here, brought into focus for us the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The words for that, the theological words for that is Christology and Soteriology. Christology being the study 
of Christ or the doctrine of Christ, soteriology being the doctrine of salvation. You have to have them both right for it to work. If your Christology is wrong, then your soteriology is deficient. If your soteriology is wrong, then your Christology is deficient. You have to have them both. One is inadequate without the other. And he came to provide redemption. Remember the Lord's message to Joseph um, in that dream when he told him that Mary was going to have a baby and he was to receive her as his wife and not throw her out and, and you were to call him Jesus for he will what? Save his people from their sins. That's what we celebrate today throughout Advent, particularly this last day of Advent, to redeem those that are under the law. The law had put us in bondage. And Paul is saying that we're, we're free of the rules and the regulations that bind us to this worldly religion. That's the danger of a religion like Christianity when you adhere to a particular religion, but you're not a Christian. There's a difference. Go back to chapter 3, Galatians 3. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. You see that? Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all. That's bondage. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul also tells us in Romans 8, verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. Alistair Begg describes the law this way for us. And it's, it's a really good illustration, if I could share it like he does. That the law is not a ladder where you, where you just keep climbing, striving to get higher and higher and higher. No, it's not a ladder. The law is a mirror where you look in it and you see the dirt. You see the smudges on your face. And you might even see the bruises on your face. And you realize there's nothing there that you can do to wash that. So you need somebody to wash it for you. That is what the law does. It exists to point us to Jesus Christ. It's not just striving and striving and striving. It's a mirror for us to look at see our sin and call upon Christ who's the only one qualified to forgive us of that sin. Redemption means to set free by paying a price. 
Now, these people understood that word redemption. It could be that up to 60 million slaves were in the Roman world during Paul's day. And in that day, you could purchase a slave. You could purchase a slave to continue to be your slave, or you could purchase a slave and set them free. Guess what Christ did? He purchased us to set us free. That's redemption. He didn't purchase us to make us slaves. He purchased us to make us sons with his own blood, his own body. God's timing is perfect. And ultimately, he did bear the penalty of the law, pay the price as our substitute. The reason we testify that Jesus is the only Savior, not only because Scripture says so, but because he's the only one that perfectly lived up to it. Alistair Begg says, if God must save them, if saved, then the Savior must be God. If man must bear the punishment because of man's sin, then the Savior must be man. If the man who bears the punishment for sin must be himself sinless, then who meets these qualifications? There's only one option. Muhammad is dead and Jesus is alive. Muhammad was a sinner. And Jesus was perfect. We can't both be right. The Hindu says God has been incarnated multiple times. The Christian says the incarnation happened only once. We can't both be right. The Jew says the Messiah hasn't come. The Christian says the Messiah has come. We can't both be right. Our symbol is a cross where someone paid a price for our sin. The Islam symbol are the scales where hopefully the good outweighs the bad. We can't both be right. If you've always wondered about that, there have always been questions in your life about the truth of Christianity. If you don't believe, if all this just sounds crazy to you, and unless you're experienced, it, I, yes, it does sound crazy. God of the universe became a fetus. That's nuts. But if it sounds crazy to you and you've rejected it, I'm encourage you to do something that's really, really simple. Pick a gospel. Just pick a gospel and read it. It won't take you very long. And say, God, if you are who this Bible says you are, would you reveal yourself to me while I read this gospel? Just read what there are four of them. You could read them all, but I'm just saying read one. Because, God, I'm going to read this gospel and I ask you to do that. Just see what happens. What do you have to lose? I think you have everything to lose. Try it. A Christmas that misses this truth. In the fullness of time come, God sent forth a son born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. The Christmas that misses, that truth misses everything. Only one could pay the price. 
and he's God incarnate so that we might receive adoption as sons. Isn't that great? God, he goes on, he said, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Talking about the spirit, we see the Trinity in these couple of verses. God plans our salvation. God the Son secures our salvation. God the Spirit applies it to our lives. Well, I guess that could have been my outline, but I liked when, who, and what. Abba, Father. Only true believers can know Him as Abba, Father. Because we've been adopted into His family. In the fullness of time, He came and lived and died to redeem us and bring us into His family. That's why we can come to the table today. I'm going to end with a quote by Luther. Martin Luther, who's probably greatest commentary is the one on Galatians. It is very profitable for us to have always before our eyes this sweet and comfortable sentence and such like which sets out Christ truly and lively that in our whole life, in all dangers, in the confession of our faith before tyrants and in the hour of death, we may boldly and with all confidence say, O law, you have no power over me. Therefore, you accuse and condemn me in vain. For I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whom the Father sent into the world to redeem us miserable sinners oppressed with the tyranny of the law. He gave his life. He shed his blood for me. Therefore, feeling your terrors and threatenings, O law, I plunge my conscience into the wounds, blood, death, resurrection, and victory of my Savior, Christ. This faith is our victory. Amen.